Hello, this is the Consciousness Podcast, and I'm your host, Stuart Preston. Each episode, I have a conversation with an expert in human consciousness. In this episode, I had the honor of speaking with Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor. Dr. Taylor is a Harvard-trained published neuroanatomist who experienced a severe hemorrhage in the left hemisphere of her brain in 1996. It took eight years to completely recover all of her physical function and thinking ability. She is the author of the New York Times best-selling memoir, My Stroke of Genius, A Brain Scientist's Personal Journey. We discuss left brain, right brain, and what that means for our understanding of consciousness. Please enjoy this episode with Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor. Dr. Taylor, well, I really appreciate you joining me here on the Consciousness Podcast. Um, I know you're in high demand, so I just got a few things to ask you, you know, about your experiences, which I think shed some unique light on human consciousness. But, you know, maybe let's get into a little bit of, of the background behind what you do in your book and your experiences. And I know you became a neuroanatomist for personal reasons, your brother. Maybe you could tell us what that was, what a neuroanatomist is, and then kind of get into your, your story of this amazing experience that gave you a unique insight into your brain. Sure. Thank you. Uh, so I, I began being fascinated with the brain and how it creates our perception of reality as a child because I have a brother who's 18 months older than I am who eventually would be diagnosed with schizophrenia. And because he was my constant companion, as children are with one another, siblings, you know, they all go together in a pack, uh, I noticed, uh, and it was pretty evident all throughout my childhood, that my brother and I could have the exact same experience and then walk away with completely different perceptions about what what actually happened. Hmm. So I became more and more interested in the brain, and um, I knew that one of us wasn't right, but I didn't know which one of us, if there is such a thing as right. Right. And I certainly didn't know what normal was because um, we, you know, there was no normal here. There was just these two very diverse perspectives. And I was the younger. So, you know, if anybody was in error of perception, it was probably me. So uh, as I grew up, I became fascinated uh, more and more with the brain and with the human anatomy um, of the body. And so that became my area specialty with a research specialty in neuro and neuroanatomy, the anatomy of the brain. And I am a cellular neuroanatomist. So I think cellularly. Uh, you can think gross structure, you can think psychology, you can think sociologically, you can think genetically, uh, you can think even smaller than that. Um, but I'm hmm. at the cellular level. So everything I think about as far as systems in the brain, I think about the brain as cellular, this magnificent collection of cells, and that different cells communicate with different cells in networks and uh, in circuitry. And uh, every ability we have, we have because we have cells that are performing that function. So that's kind of who I am and how I got to be uh, me. Right. Okay. And that's interesting about the cells. I think later on I have a question about non-brain cells, but we'll wait and get to that. So, so your story, that's how you became a neuroanatomist focused on the, on the cells part of the brain. You ended up having a stroke and getting a very unique perspective into your own brain and probably brains in general. I did. 
So I was uh, teaching and performing research at Harvard Medical School. And actually my area of, of expertise because of my relationship with my brother was always asking the question, what is normal and how does my brain create my perception of reality because my brother who is genetically the closest thing to me that exists in the universe was we had a skewed perception from one another and i believed that it we would be able to define that at a cellular level which cells are communicating with which other cells with which chemicals and in what quantities of those chemicals and what are the differences at a cellular level between the brains of people who would be diagnosed as normal control versus um, schizophrenia, schizoaffective, OCD, mm. panic, anxiety, all of the major neurologicals. And then I woke up one morning, I was 37 years old, teaching and performing research at Harvard, and I experienced a major hemorrhage in the left half of my brain. And over the next four hours, I watched my own brain deteriorate circuit by circuit going offline to the point where I eventually four, four hours later became um, unconscious. Uh, but during that four hour period of time, I actually got to witness the circuitry of my own brain circuit by circuit go offline. And through the eyes of a neuroanatomist, it was a fascinating experience. It's like a, an auto mechanic watching his or her car break down. Exactly. It was amazing. It really was amazing. And so you saw circuit by circuit turning off and the effects. And so part of you is thinking, oh, isn't that cool versus, oh, I should get myself some help immediately. Well, I was trying to get myself help, but I was really trying to self-diagnose. I am not an MD. I'm not a neurologist. I do not I do not hang out with uh, patients who have stroke or any of the other major neurologicals. I have studied them. I have had many, many classes, but there's a real difference between what you learn in a book and what you learn in training and in practice. Yeah. So I was not familiar with stroke. I, re I knew the warning signs of stroke. And so partway through the morning when my right arm went fi finally went paralyzed, completely paralyzed and bopped against my body, then I'm putting together, oh my gosh, I'm having a stroke. I'm having a stroke. Hmm. And the next thing that my brain said was, wow, this is so cool. How many brain scientists have the opportunity to study their own brain from the inside out? So through those eyes, it was a fascinating experience, but I did have to try to stay on task that morning. And I was waffling between my right brain consciousness, which is as big as the universe, no boundaries for where I begin and where I end, no connection to detail, no Jill Bolte Taylor whatsoever. She's off in my yeah. brain somewhere. And then my left brain would come back online and allow me to remember who am I, what's going on, what do I need to do, I'm trying to get help, how do I get help, when my world is getting smaller and smaller because more and more circuits are going offline. And did that give you a sense of, of panic or urgency, watching the circuits going off but knowing you had to do something to, to save yourself? No, I really didn't because I, I knew that uh, the circuitry for panic and anxiety of that lower limbic tissue mm -hmm. of my left brain, that was now drowning in a pool of blood. I was very fortunate mm -hmm. 
that the fear circuitry went offline. So all I had was curiosity and stick to it, stick to it, stick to it of my left cognitive brain in order to get myself help. Okay. Um, so what else? I want to talk to you about the two hemispheres of the brain, but anything else about that, that, that amazing experience that, that you want to share before we I'd ask you about the hemispheres? I just think it's uh, important to realize that the brain is a very big place. And although a lot of functions are multiplied, there is um, uh, laterality of some major functions inside of the brain. So as that left brain was shutting down, I did not become, I did not lose consciousness until I arrived at the hospital. And up until that point, I was, I was waffling in and out of having a left brain function and then boom, no left brain function hmm. and what that was like. But it's important to realize I was conscious during the right brain experience. I wasn't unconscious. I wasn't, uh, right. I wasn't passed out. I wasn't comatose. I wasn't vegetative. Uh, I wasn't any of that yet. On the morning, I was this, I had a whole brain, and then I had just a right brain. And then I had a whole brain, even though it wasn't functioning well, it was still, uh, I was working with it. After the morning of the stroke, once I reawoke, the left brain was completely turned off and shut down. Um, So when I awoke that afternoon, I was completely conscious in my right hemisphere, but my left hemisphere skill set was completely offline because... Uh, and that's my ability to interact with the external world. Um, so it's really important to realize that I was completely conscious. Um, was I conscious with a whole brain? No, but I was, my right brain was still functional. Yeah. So you, you had the ability to live. So what, what did you know about the two hemispheres and the roles that they play before this happened? And then, yes. I, I had read whatever there was to read about the left brain and the right brain. Um, there was a lot of, of science done in the 70s and 80s with the uh, commissurotomy um, uh, surgeries where, mm-hmm. where they, the physician cut the corpus callosum, which is 300 million axonal fibers passing between the two hemispheres so that each hemisphere knows what's going on in the other hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we learned a lot of interesting things about uh, those two hemispheres. Uh, so there was quite a bit to know about, about, about uh, lateral thinking instead of bilateral, both hemispheres being processed for the same function. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I knew what was written up in uh, the books, uh, the science books. I, I had taken a lot of neuro, different kinds of neuro, psychology, sociology, um, you know, so, so I kind of knew what, what we knew in the day, which was yeah. in the 90s. Um, and it was very exciting because uh, I was doing brain research and we were studying human tissue uh, post-mortem. And at that point in time, nobody really cared whether or not they had uh, received from the brain bank, the right hemisphere or the left hemisphere. And I hmm. thought, I thought, how can that be? These are two completely different machines. Um, and I really felt that after uh, the stroke. Um, right. So, so, um, so anyway, so I knew what they knew, but you know, there's a huge difference between reading about uh, how to ride a bike and what it actually feels like to be on that bike. 
Yeah, and that's a really unique experience. I mean, no matter who has taken a scalpel or a microscope to a brain, they, they still don't have the same insight that you had from, from what you went through. True. Yeah, you know, I was the right girl in the right place to learn. Yeah. Yeah. That's, a, that's amazing. And I bet it doesn't feel that way to you, but lucky for all of us. <laughs> you know, Stuart, if I could go back and relive that morning or have it bypass and the stroke never happened, I would definitely have that stroke and relive it because I'm, I'm an educator. I'm an academic. I love to learn. And this brain is my area of specialty. So for me to be able to have that experience, even though it wiped out, you know, eight years of my life. Uh, and com my life ended up on a completely different trajectory than what it had been up to that point in time. It was so interesting and so fascinating and so insightful. And the, you know, it was just a, a magnificent opportunity to have, to gain an insight into this incredibly mysterious box we, you know, think inside of. Yeah. And so what, what did you learn? What insight did you have? you know, from this? I mean, in reading through your book, you know, I, I know, I know the roles of the two brains. Um, you really got to, to see that. But what did you learn? And what can you share with us about your firsthand experience with with uh, a, a split brain, or at least um, a right brain without the left brain, and then having both brains back together again? So I think the most important thing is, uh, what does it feel like? What does it feel like to be in just a right brain? And when you think about the two hemispheres, the right hemisphere is bringing information in and processing information right here, right now in the present moment. And in the present moment, it's not organized so that where the boundaries of where I begin and where I end, I don't see myself as this tiny little human. Instead, it focuses on energy because we are these energy uh, processing machines and energy and and as a cellular entity i mean you have to consider what was it like what is the consciousness like of that single cell that single zygote cell that began as the dna from dad from the sperm and the dna from mom from the egg cell coming together as that original zygote cell and mm. what did that what did that cell have well, what it had was it had genetic profile. It had, it had molecules that would direct protein organization within itself so that it could multiply itself and become a multicellular organism. But the whole thing is actually directed by a ball of energy. It is a little ball of energy around surrounding the organization created internally by the DNA. So as you think about what our you as a right brain, if you wipe out all the detail focus of that left brain, there's a group of cells in your left parietal region that says that, that creates a holographic image of where you begin and where you end so that hmm. you know that these legs, when you look at them, you know that those are yours. Uh, if those cells go offline, you don't even notice that there are any legs. All you notice is that you are connected energetically without any separation from all the energy around you. So we become this energy that is literally as big as the universe and 
your energy is intermingling with my energy, no matter where you are on the planet, and things come and go in waves. And right here, right now is a magnificent present moment. I'm capable of bringing in visual stimulation. It's beautiful. It's colorful. It's interesting. I, cre I can create sound. Oh my gosh, I'm capable of moving my limbs and my legs allow me to take myself into space so that I'm like a big amoeba floating around. <laughs> and I know this all sounds very bizarre, but that's what your right hemisphere is always doing. It's always turned on and it's always perceiving that. But but then we have this magnificent left brain that comes in and it says, I have to create order out of all of this big three-dimensional ball of energy because otherwise I'm completely non-effective and, and non-functional. And so the left brain starts creating order and creates categories and creates boundaries between things so that things can become separate. So then I can function and actually see details and organize details and organize things and organize sounds and or into words and, and create language and create the boundaries of where I begin and, and where I am so that I can use me in the world that is you know, otherwise really amorphous. So between these two beautiful hemispheres, we have it all. We have the connection to the big picture and we have the connection to the detail. So on the morning of my stroke, when I lost that left hemisphere, I became open and expansive and as big as the universe and connected to everything. And right here, right now, present moment, I had no past. I had no future. All I had was the rich deliciousness of this present moment life force that I was, but I was completely non-functional non because I didn't have that left brain to organize information. And my guess is that that's very similar to what it's like when a newborn is born into this world where all they have is the present moment experience and stimulation and it is perceived as chaos and then the brain starts making new connections based on the new kinds of stimulation coming in and eventually that brain which is designed to create order out of disorder uh, comes online and we become more functional. And the left brain kind of builds these little models of our experiences. So this newborn baby is, is given apple mush to eat. And then the toddler gets apple slices and the adult gets an apple. And then we pick an apple off a tree. And every time we have these experiences, our brain kind of rebuilds this model of an apple. Is that right? And then that kind of, that kind of lays over this structure, over this wonderful connectedness that the right brain is experiencing the phenomenal experience of an apple that the right brain might be experiencing. Exactly. And it goes for finer and finer detail. And so in our society, which is extremely skewed to the value structure of the left brain, it's about two things. It's about language and my ability to be articulate and about articulate about the details of my expertise. So not only do I know all these details about the body and all these details about the systems and then about the organs and about the cells and about the molecules and about um, you know, all the, the little uh, physiology of how it all functions, all that detail, not only do I know it, 
but I can talk about it. And in our society, that's, that's how we, we build authority and we respect authority and the left hemisphere uh, is, is hierarchical. Things are, are, there's a ladder. We're always climbing the ladder and I know more and I wanna know more than you know because you and I want the same job and so I have to compete against you because you and I are separate from one another and I want that job and you want that job. And so, so now you know we have this competitive nature and it's always trying to climb up that ladder because the higher on the ladder we get, the more prestige we get, the more authority we get, the more money we get, the bigger house we get, the bigger boat we get, the bell, you know, blah, 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 blah. So yeah. that's what that left hemisphere is driven to do while the right hemisphere is right here right now. And, you know, Stuart, the beauty of being in the right brain is right here right now is a perfect moment. It's not freaking out. It's not running a stress circuitry. It's right here, right now. It's peaceful. It's beautiful. It's excited. It's curious, mm -hmm. interested, and innovative. And it's a marvelous way to live. And then the left hemisphere comes on and says, but I'm not pretty enough. I'm not <laughs> smart enough. I'm not rich enough. My house isn't big enough. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's quite a, that's quite a conundrum. And a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to get to that that peaceful place of just being here and now in the moment. It's a billion, multi-billion dollar industry. It is. It is. So this energy, the right, right brain and the energy being and connected to this, to the universe and the left brain being so structured and really helping us survive. I guess two questions. I hope I can remember the second question is, is where is the ego and all that? But my first question is, um, what's your opinion then? So consciousness, no, no pun intended with David Chalmers, but it's a hard question. It's hard to figure out what does it even mean? You know, to a, to a medical doctor, it's easy. It's, it's binary. You're either conscious or you're not conscious. So that's all they care about. To a lot of the philosophers can really get in the, themselves into a knot trying to figure out what it, what it means. Um, have you thought about what, what is consciousness? You know, some might say it's awareness of your awareness. The, what you experience with your right brain. Some people say that might be quote pure consciousness without getting too, too far out there. Um, what is consciousness to you and how does it work? Is it all contained within the brain or did your right brain experience teach you that, that maybe there, there's more outside of the, the physical body to our consciousness? So I think that, of course, I think about this. I think anybody who goes into uh, this kind of science really goes yeah. into because, you know, there, in my day when I was in school back in the, the 80s, uh, there were two subjects that were, were taboo. And one of them was the subject of consciousness. Huh. So we all went into, yeah, we couldn't talk about this back in the, the 80s and 90s. Are you kidding me? They'd all think, you know, it was just taboo. I mean, it was like woo-woo. Just the concept. Yeah. So, so huh. no respecting scientists could talk about either consciousness or energy. And we could talk about energy and ATP and mitochondria, but we could not talk about the energy field within which we reside. It was, it was, it was woo-woo. So, you know, as time <laughs> goes on, what is perceived as cutting science uh, and is perceived as woo-woo. And then as time goes on and people study it and they start being able to uh, prove the existence of it and understand it as a concept, uh, then it's okay 
to talk about it. So, um, you know, I love talking about consciousness. I've been talking about it for, uh, you know, 40 years and, um, nice. uh, and it's great. So, uh, but that, you know, 40 years ago, we were talking about it in the lunchroom, not in the lab. Right. So, um, so I see having had this particularly this experience with the left brain shutting down and then rebuilding it um, because I had to consciously choose to rebuild the skill sets, the circuits of that left brain. They didn't just come online again. Uh, some of them did, but some of them I had to work at and train at and purposefully make new connections between cells that would permit me new abilities. So when I think about consciousness, I think that, that consciousness is, is the foundation of the consciousness is, uh, is the energy around us and the energy within us. What, is, what was the consciousness of that original uh, zygote cell uh, that I was talking about before? Was that cell, did it have consciousness does the did the dna of the sperm cell have a consciousness does the egg cell that sits in a in your mother when your mother and forms in your mother's body when she's five weeks um in her own gestation so you went through nine oh. months inside of your grandmother uh, as, as, as your mother was taking form, uh, was that egg, was that egg cell conscious? Um, uh, to me, conscious is, is, you know, awareness. Um, if you go to awareness, uh, that's a big question. That's a big concept. Uh, aware is a human multicellular 50 trillion cells is going to be a completely different consciousness of, of half a brain functioning with those energy patterns. So you have to think about the energy and you have to think about the energy patterns that are created by that energy. And every energy pattern is unique based on the circuit or the composition of that particular entity and does it have a consciousness well you know is is an egg cell going to think the same things that um i think no is a uh, rabbit going to think the same things that a cat thinks no um you know so 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 for me it goes down to what are the elements that make up or the composition of consciousness and in order for order to be created out of chaos to me there is a consciousness that is driving there is a some sort of an energetic pull toward that ends up resulting in do i believe consciousness comes from no consciousness no i think consciousness is and then consciousness finds billions and billions of different ways of, of stimulating itself into receiving different kinds of stimulation um, in order to have a new perception of consciousness. That, that's where I go. If you ask me what is the meaning of life, I'm just ranting it, you know. If, um, Good. Yeah, if you, if you ask me... Um, uh, I don't even remember where I was going. I just the, mean, the meaning of life, consciousness. Oh, thank you. There we go. So the meaning of life to me is, let's say, the smallest form of true life is, as science defines it, the fundamental unit of life is the cell. 
And it doesn't have to be a, a human cell, like that single zygote that we originated from. It might be a bacteria. It yeah. might be, um, uh, you know, a sperm cell is a single cell. Um, the, and and the, the thing about the cell as this form of life is that on its membrane, there is a semi-permeable membrane separating that cell from its environment, whether it's a single-celled organism or a multi. So some things can go into the cell if it can uh, have the right key to stimulate the right receptor in order to go into the cell. And there are little receptors out on the cell membrane um, and so to me, what is the meaning of that life? And the meaning of that life is to, to be stimulated by what is outside of that semi-permeable membrane, and then to interact in some way with that external environment based on what it is what it's programmed to do. So let's say I'm a single cell and I have uh, hydrogen receptors on my membrane and I am detecting the pH, the level of acidity or alkalinity of the external world by the number of hydrogen atoms that are in that environment. And let's say I do better in a, uh, an alkaline environment. So if I have too much hydrogen jumping onto my molecules and I am detecting that this is an acidic environment, then I'm going to be pushed away from that, that environment instead of drawn to light stimulation. Mm -hmm. Photons is another great example. Uh, many microbes go toward the light. Other microbes go away from the light. So the meaning of life for that particular single cell is to stimulate and be stimulated by. And so then life gets more and more and more interesting and complicated. More cells, multicellular organization happens until eventually you have a human and we are stimulated through our sensory, sensory systems. We stimulate our environment in a billion ways that we interact with it. And we have the ability for movement. We have these fantastic hands and feet that take us places and perform all kinds of things in the external world so that we have this incredible cognitive mind that is all about curiosity and, and being stimulated by and then creating new possibilities for new kinds of stimulation. Uh, so I look at it, for, you know, as a, as a cellular, this, this miraculous, amazing, phenomenal gift of life. And, and that's, you know, for me, wow. I mean, it's just this big, huge wow. Yeah. And so all these cells in our brains, in our bodies, have these interactions with uh, energy between each other, with the I mean, would it be right for you to say with the universe's energy? Again, not trying to get too woo-woo, but, you know, I want to get to the heart of some ideas. Um, so all the cells in the brain and all the cells in the body are all energy, connecting to energy, connecting to each other. And so as a whole unit, I am conscious. Is that... Well, I think you're conscious in a, I think everybody in you is conscious. I think that your liver has a consciousness. Mm 
I think your liver has a job to do, but it's made up of cells. And, and each one of those cells has its own consciousness. Each one of those cells is its own individual entity living in an environment that it's interacting with. So, so why would we not think that those cells yeah. are conscious? Now, there, right there alone, you're going to have, um, you know, there's a lot of, of dispute and argument and people who think that that's an absurd concept. And it's like, well, then I think you need to open your mind and your definition of what is consciousness. I'm not saying it's going to think about mathematics. Right. I'm saying it is aware of the role that it plays in its environment. It's not an automatum. It has, you know, it, it, it's not an automatum any more than I'm an automatum as a massive collection. And do I have to have a left brain in order to be conscious? No. Do I have to have a right brain? To be conscious? No. Do I have some kind of, even as a vegetable in a vegetative condition or in a comatose where the brain is shut down, do I have some form of consciousness? Well, I think you ought to ask my body that. I mean, there are neurons <laughs> in the heart. There are neurons in the enteric nervous system of the, the gut. Um, it, you know, the brain is not the only place there are neurons. And do I have to have a neuron in order to be conscious? And, and I personally don't think so, considering hmm. now it's going to have a collective consciousness. Of course, my, my, but we're adding on uh, specificity and unique nature of possibility for stimulation and perception of do I have to have here, here's the one that really got me was um, I was told that I was um, not by many people but you know there's always that unique mm -hmm. uh, person who wants to make judgment I was um, I was unconscious I was uh, I had a diseased brain uh, I was brain damaged and I was no longer conscious and I thought seriously um, seriously, your <laughs> definition of conscious is that, that reductive to it must function like this in order for it to have consciousness. Um, and hmm. then, you know, then you have to go to the definition of consciousness and what are we talking about? Um, but, and you know, that's why you're popular because it's such an enormous question. It is, it is a big question. And and you're kind of going down a similar path that I had actually never considered it until I talked to uh, Dr. Chris Niebauer last month was the separation or the difference, not separation, the, the difference between mind versus consciousness. Yes. Good. And I and I hear I hear that, that concept and what you're saying that each cell is conscious because it has its purpose. And when it's connected all together, it forms a liver that is, has its consciousness. And it's my gut has a consciousness. My body does. And then, and then you get into your brain and your brain forms this mind. Exactly. And within that mind, you also have this, this energy consciousness because it's made up of all these cells and neurons and blood and all this stuff together. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And you don't just have mind. In the mind, in the brain, you have you have a cognitive consciousness. You have cognition in both hemispheres. They're different from one another. Hmm. You're processing the same data, but in different ways. Looking at it, uh, I mean, if you're looking at a tree or a forest, you know, there's the example. When you look at a group of trees, your left brain is going to look at the forest. It's going to look at the big picture. It's going to look at the shape of it. It's going to look at, uh, you know, just kind of the overall. Um, lighting and you know it's just going to see the whole thing as this big 
living thing. And then the left brain comes in and it looks at the exact same forest and it's going to focus in on different kinds of bark and different colors, leaves and different shapes of leaves and all the details. So do you have to have both of those in order to be consciousness? Do you have, have to be, uh, have either because you get rid of the analysis part of the cognitive brain and you look at just the limbic system, the emotional cells of each of those hemispheres, and they're completely different from one another as well. Hmm. The right brain limbic cells are going to be right here, right now. How do I feel in the present moment experience? And then the left hemisphere brings in all the data from the present experience and compares it to everything I ever experienced in the past to determine the level of risk based on my past experience. So they're completely different as well. Yeah, that's interesting. So when you, when you look at the two different things, and I feel like maybe you described the brains, like the left brain is a is serial because it's so linked to time. that It's a linear serial way of modeling. And the right brain is kind of a parallel, um, big picture kind of image feeling kind of a thing. Um, okay. They have to share information, though, to have this combined experience. And that uh, through the, the corpus callosum is what you were saying. But they, they both are reacting. They both have their, their eyeball and their ear and all these things that they're the senses and building. And then they interact and put the whole picture together. Exactly. And then when they're separate, um, each one has its own cognition and its own ideas and a way of going about it. But it, it does it in a separate way once you've severed that, that connection. Exactly. And... We have the ability to consciously know which of those groups of cells are, are we currently experiencing because they all feel different. So my left hemisphere personality is a completely different character than my right hemisphere personality. They feel differently. They hold my body differently. They, they, their whole experience is very different. And not just each of the cognitive minds are different, but the way the two different emotional systems feel inside of our body is unique. And you mentioned in your book that you can walk into a room and people who know you know kind of which, oh, yeah. which, which mind you're in, which brain you're, you're kind of mindset you're in. Absolutely. You know, let's say you walk into uh, you walk into an, a new office space where you're going to meet some people, and um, uh, you know you you've got a suit on and you got your work shoes on and you got your hair combed and and you talk the way that you talk when you talk like you're a smart person, <laughs> and your left brain is online and you are there and you're listening and you're interacting and you hold your breath your the, you, you hold your whole self differently than when you go home and you take off your suit and you put on your shorts and you put a hose in your hand and you're going to go wash your car and you're relaxed and your shoulders are relaxed and, and you know, you're, you're probably a better sense of humor and you're probably a little friendlier and it, you're completely different, but you're the same person. Yeah. Now, let's say you have a twin brother, and let's say you're the twin that is always at work, and your twin brother is the one who always gets to act like he's on vacation, <laughs> right? You're yeah. good with money. He's good with spending money, you know? Right, yeah. 
completely different people. So, so, but, but we have that inside of ourselves and getting to know those different characters inside of yourself to me is freedom because then you have the power to choose moment by moment who and how you want to be in the world. And you're actually running different circuitry inside of your brain. And that's where I think the, the next phase, you know, as you go through your book and, and through who you are and what you offer us um, people in the world is you, you help us, you know, one of your things is to help other people learn from your experience and your expertise and the two of those combined. Um, now I want people to go buy the book, so we don't want to give it away. You know what I mean? Everything. I want them to be intrigued and go, I need to buy this book, but maybe there's some things you can tease, you know, like, you know, like you're talking about right now, the, the two halves and you can switch between them. It's for somebody who's actually experienced it in your unique way. I think that's provides obviously that unique insight. Um, you know, a lot of us will, will meditate, you know, and try different experiences, you know, to get into left brain versus right brain. But you've got some pretty interesting things in, in your book that can help people when they're trying to listen to the brain chatter and observe it and dismiss it. And, you know, you have something called wine time, uh, which for the wine drinkers out there, that's a different kind of wine. We're talking about winey, um, you know, or maybe the two work together. I don't know. But um, so what's, what are some things I know? I know there's a big chunk of this that is designed to help people learn from your experiences and be able to tap into one brain or the other and, and work with them is any, any small advice. Again, I don't want you to give everything away, but maybe some teasers as to what people can kind of do to really control the, I don't, I don't want to say control. That's a bad word, but it's, it's uh, to work with it, work within this space that maybe a lot of people didn't even know they had. Yeah. So, you know, to me, the beauty of uh, the book, my stroke of insight is that um, uh, I take you on the morning of the stroke. I take you mm -hmm. on the journey from being a whole-brained person into step-by-step -step what I noticed along the way as I went along, went, as circuit-by-circuit circuit went offline. And I do that for two reasons. First of all, I want anybody who ever experiences any of those phenomenon to realize this is real. I'm having a problem. Call 911 sooner rather than later. Stroke is a medical emergency and the best overall um, uh, prognosis comes from a quick, uh, uh, get to the hospital quick. Um, and, and that's because if you're experiencing a, a blood clot, then there are medications that they can actually give you that will bust that clock sooner rather than later, which means less damage sooner mm. before much damage is there. So um, the morning of the stroke is, is an important journey to go on for that reason, but also to realize that we are this magnificent collection of cells. And when the cell circuits go offline, abilities go offline. So when my right arm went paralyzed, completely paralyzed, I knew that I was having a problem with the motor circuitry cells inside of my left brain. That gave me information about, yes, I'm having a stroke, and yes, I know where the problem is. 
and then other circuits started were going off little at a time and we are fascinating creatures hmm. and if you are remotely interested in what you are as a human being and how are you wired that book is is there's nothing like it out there so so then but the beauty of that is it it helps you really realize you're a cellular creature and that the health and the well-being of my brain, the health and well-being of your brain, is based on the health and the well-being of the cells that make up your brain. And it's not a brain. I'm not a person anymore. I'm not a brain anymore. I'm a collection of cells. Hmm. And if I'm willing to recognize what do the cells need in order for them to perform their function, and I give those cells what they need, which is generally a whole lot of sleep and a whole lot of the correct food and a whole lot of water, um, then, and, a, and an intention, then I can help purposefully and consciously rebuild my brain connections. When you look at yourself as that kind of an animal, you're a completely an different animal than, well, I had a stroke and I want to get it back, but I don't do anything in order to take care of myself in order to get it back. I'm probably not going to get it back as well as I would if I was looking at it as a cellular entity. So then, you know, everybody says, oh, well, but I want that peace and magnificence <laughs> and that nirvana of the right mm -hmm. hemisphere. So right. how do I shut down my left brain enough in order to experience the nirvana? And generally, the tools that most people use is a meditation, a prayer, or the repetition of a mantra. And essentially, the, the ego, which was your other question, oh, yeah. the ego is a group of cells inside of your left hemisphere that says, I am Joe Bolte Taylor. I am an individual. These are the boundaries of where I begin and end. This is my name. This is all the data about me, me, me. Uh, this is uh, my <laughs> education, and this is my house, and this is my, my, my. Um, and so I have this file of, of knowledge, of information in that left brain. And, and as soon as I become an individual separate from the big picture flow of the present moment, uh, I'm, I'm, oh, I am separated from the, the consciousness of being in peace. Because there is peace everywhere, and it is that circuitry and that stress circuitry in the left brain that accelerates all of our thinking and all of our got to do, got to do, got to do, got to do this, got to do this, got to do this, got to be there, got to be this, got to be that, got to do, got to do. And that's a level of acceleration inside of that left hemisphere that says, I got to learn this. I got to know those details. I got to talk about this. I got to climb that ladder. I got to make more money. I got to get a bigger house. Da, 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 da. And with that comes the stress circuitry. And stress in and of itself is not a bad thing because it's an energy and it's a push and it's a circuitry. But when it doesn't pause, we are biological creatures. You have to push and then you have to pause. Hmm. And what that left brain does, and in our society that now is skewed to the left value structure of, of I'm willing to work 80 hours a week, but I'm re ready to wear those brown circles under my eyes as my badge of honor because I'm working, working, working in order to attain, 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 and blah, 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 and get more and more and more, and I'm sleeping less. And we are actually in a society that values, oh, well, 
well, you know, I only had five hours last week, you know, <laughs> and, and I'm averaging like four. I can get away on four and a half hours a night. And I'm thinking, yeah, uh, a great quote by um, uh, uh, Ariana Huffington. Yeah, <laughs> but imagine how much more interesting you would be if you had that extra <laughs> hour of sleep. You know, so we're becoming automatons and we're not yeah. automatons. We're living, breathing, processing uh, machines. And, and so then it's like, okay, well, now I'm on a go, 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 go. How do I slow down enough in order to come into the present moment? And there are tools that you can use, of course, breathing, just paying attention, bringing your mind to the present moment, thinking about your own breath as it comes into your body uh, makes, you know, that's step one. But boy, that left brain then says, well, this is a waste of time. Why am I messing yeah. with this? You know, I could be like exercising on my bike while I'm taking care of this. And it's like, no, nah, that's not the way that it works. Yeah. Yeah, that left brain sure does like to interrupt. Oh, it wants to go, 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 because it's me. It's my ego. It's what I have. It's what I want. It's it's what I'm doing. It's like busy, busy. And it's like, no, you need to like slow down and take a breath and go look at the ocean. You know what it feels like when you go and you look at the ocean and you breathe deeply and you look yeah. at that and you realize you're just a speck of dust in the universe? <laughs> yeah, just, uh, just some stardust. You know, and the right hemisphere is really, really, really good with that because, yeah. it's, oh my God, but I am alive and I can experience what it feels like in my chest and feels like in the beauty in my eyes and what in the, the rhythmic uh, surge of the tide and it just softens my whole soul and that left brain it's never going to go away just set it aside for a minute you know it's not like you're making it go away for long it's just like yes I can be here that's my power as a human being. We have the power to pick and choose who and how we want to be. Wow. That's amazing. That's incredible. The, uh, the one thing I wanted to point out, it's not a question. It's just for anybody listening. You've got um, a, a chapter, I think a whole chapter, and then also an appendix about kind of how to communicate and talk and help somebody who has been through a stroke, which I think – Again, it's not really a subject matter here, but I just was struck by how amazing it is, the, the advice you give there, because having, having been through some loss of my own, I know a lot of people came to me and would say, I just don't know what to say to you. You know, how do I communicate to you? And so I, I would have to train them in how to talk to me for that. And so to read something in your book about how to communicate and work with a, a loved one or somebody who, who has been through a stroke, I think is just super precious information. So anybody who had somebody in their family go through a stroke should pick up this book, if not only for that, but I think you'll end up reading the whole book and being amazed by everything in it. But those two pieces there, I think are also vital. The 40 recommendations for recovery. Yeah. Through the eyes of others. Um, it is such important information that, you know, you think is common sense, but no. no. So many people, if, if you're in the presence of someone who has experienced a major trauma, um, and we get scared because we don't know the right thing to say. And I think so often the right thing to say is to simply show up with a soft tone and love in your heart and just a gentle spirit and let people know, I am with you. 
I yes. may not have any clue about what's going on inside of you, but I love you. I believe in you. I am here for you. And it's so important that people, you know, people want to do visitation and that's a lovely thing. And right now, of course, there's none of that going on. Right, right. Um, but to be able to show up for someone for just a visit of five or 10 minutes, you don't want to wear the person out. You don't need to go in and, and download from your left cognitive brain everything, every detail that you can think of because they're, you know, can't talk. I mean, they're yeah. probably, they just want your energy. They need you to come in and just be gentle and soft and loving. So I think that those 40 recommendations are, are really very important. But you, I should let you know that book number two uh, will come out next year. And book number two is is kind of about what we've already talked about. It's about about who is, how, when I say we have the power to choose moment by moment who and how we want to be in the world, what does that mean? How can I choose to be the consciousness of my left cognitive mind? What does that character do? What does that character feel like when I'm in that character? What is the character, how do I get to that peaceful, blissful nirvana of my right cognitive brain? That group of cells that is in the present how do I find that character who is that inside of me how do I get there what are the steps I need to go in order to find that who am I when I'm being my little belligerent self uh, who mm. is that? We all know that person inside of ourselves. And, and, you know, how do we how do we recognize it and protect it and love it so that it doesn't have to come out? And who's our little playful self? And these are actual groups of cells inside of our brain. So it's kind of a roadmap to who we are and how we want to be. Wow. Well, that's what I was going to ask you is what, what is, uh, what's coming next from you. So I will be uh, reloading my Amazon search for Jill Bolte Taylor or constantly looking for that one. It's supposed to come out next April. And I really, it, it's, it's beautiful material. And you know, the only way I came to this was because I lost my left brain. And when mm -hmm. I lost my left brain, I lost my left emotion and I, which is all the pain from my past. And, you know, I have to say that was delightful. Yeah. And then the left thinking brain. And that was difficult because, you know, I couldn't communicate with the world. Right. Um, and then, and so I still had emotion of the present moment. And so I got to know that character and I had thinking experience, bigger picture experiential of that character. So I got to know that person. And then those two characters had to rebuild and do what I needed to do and relearn and retrain my left cognitive brain. And then the emotional system of my left cognitive brain rebooted itself. And then I, I had to start from scratch with new emotion. And what does that feel like? So, so I really got to know these four characters. I consider them very specific characters. Uh, your brain is wired pretty much like mine. Um, you will identify these four inside of you and you'll say, you know, right now I'm, I'm in my hmm. left cognitive brain and, or I had an outburst of my left emotional brain. Um, I, and, and, you know, you can then ch consciously choose those other parts of you. Yeah. 
That's powerful. It's kind of like that that uh, 90 seconds you said when you have an emotion or a reaction. If, if you can wait 90 seconds, that's how long your brain takes to actually process it. If you go past that, then you're choosing to carry it. Yeah, so the 90-second rule, you know, at any moment in time, there are only three things going on inside of our head. We're thinking thoughts or we're feeling emotions or we are running a physiological response to what we are thinking and what we're feeling. It's circuitry. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And so let's say, yeah, let's say I'm going to think, uh, I think a thought that inevitably every time I think about that person, I get angry. Okay. And because my, my thought and my, my emotional circuit for that person are linked together powerfully and uh, they make me angry. And so I think about the person, I feel that I'm going to be angry. I then feel the physiological response uh, to what I'm thinking and feeling, noradrenaline dumps into my bloodstream, it flushes through me, it flushes out of me, and in less than 90 seconds from the moment I think the thought until my blood is now clear of that, uh, that rush. So that's what I call the 90-second rule, and you can actually watch yourself. How long do you stay happy? How long do you stay sad? How long do you stay angry? How long do you hmm. stay frustrated? You're running circuitry. These are just circuitry circuits inside of your body. And um, uh, it's very freeing. Um, Now, of course, people will say, well, you know, Jill, I can stay angry for a whole lot longer than 90 (laughs) seconds. And it's like, yeah, well, if you'd stop thinking about that person, you'd stop being running the circuit. So we're running the circuit, and then we're rethinking the thoughts that are re-stimulating that whole flood again. And it becomes very stressful. It's very stressful on the body. Yeah, Yeah, it sure is. Wow. So what, uh, I think we're at the end here. Is there anything else that, that I have not asked you that you want to get out there? No, I just think being aware that, you know, we have, mu- we have much more power over what's going on inside of our heads than we were ever taught. And yeah. the more interested we are in that, the more we learn about that, the more willing we are to train ourselves, uh, you know, the more peaceful lives we can live. I love it. And I appreciate you sharing that information and, and helping us all with that. It's powerful stuff. Throughout throughout the interview, a couple of times you would go blah, blah, blah. And I, I find you refreshing and the total opposite of blah, 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 whatever that would be. So I'm really grateful. Yeah. yeah I'm, re- I'm just, yeah, I can't thank you enough for coming on here and sharing this information. And uh, I'll put a link to your book. I'll keep a lookout for your new book. And uh, just very grateful for you to spend your time with me and the audience here today. And uh, just thank you. Perfect. Well, thank you. I appreciate your subject material. I'm actually going to go listen to some of your uh, your other interviews on this this subject because it's a fascinating conversation. Uh, it is. And everybody thinks about it through the matrix of their own circuitry. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That concludes another edition of the Consciousness Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Please find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash the consciousness podcast at our Twitter handle, at ConchCast. And don't forget to subscribe to our feed at theconsciousnesspodcast.com. Thank you for listening.